0: Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 11th, 2021. This is Charles Hayne, writer for No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Good morning. We're going to be talking about how Turner Classic Movies is handling problematic movies. We're going to be talking about IMAX's expectation for summer movies 2021. We're going to be talking about Godard's announcement of retirement. And is that too early or too late? And then we also, we got two little tech stories this week that I think are interesting. A complete remote workflow solution from Aeroflex and uh, continuing drama around the patent protection for internal RAW with the Mavo 8K announcing they're dropping internal RAW. Big news all this week on the No Film School podcast. Dun, dun, dun. All right. So, our first story this week TCM has announced that they're going to be kicking off a series called Reframed Classics that's going to have discussions about significant films from the 20s through the 60s that are complicated. I mean, let's say it like often racist. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the classic example is uh, Mickey Rooney's like unabashedly racist performance as Mr. Yunioshi in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, you know, films with blackface, films with glorifying the Confederacy, like um, the the kickoff film, Gone with the Wind. And what I think is good about this, I mean, first off, Turner Classic Movies is a a great thing. It's how many people have been introduced to movies made before they were born. So in general, TCM is sort of mostly a force for good. I mean, it's also like a money making machine for Turner because he was one of the few people smart enough to secure the rights to these films. At a time in the 70s and 80s when no one else saw them as having any value. So like, you know, good for Ted Turner and continuing to profit off this. But I think it's just a really worthwhile thing to discuss because often we discuss like this movie is getting erased from, you know, archives or they're not even going to screen the blackface scenes in 30 Rock anymore. Which like I'm fine with the black race, the two blackface scenes in 30 Rock, neither of them are that funny. But, you know, these are culturally significant movies that had an impact on cinema And they're problematic and they deserve to be discussed and put in context. And I like the fact that there's an attempt going on here to be like, these movies have issues. These movies have problems. They perpetuated problems. Let's try and deal with them with some nuance. I mean, the baffling thing for me is exactly how long we continued to make any movies glorifying any Confederates. Like they are a bunch of traitors and losers, (laughs) <laughs> and like the fact that a hundred years after they lost those traitorous bastards, we still made *Gun with the Wind*. The fact that Ang Lee made a Confederate Western in like 1998, *Ride with the Devil*. That like, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, th- you're bringing up a specifically me. a specifically interesting point about the Confederacy. There's a term for it historically, and I only came across it when this is going to get like history nerdy, but. When I was studying um the history of Rome because there's this there was this strange romanticization of Carthage who Rome defeated. I forget the word it's like the romantic loser or something, but there is a precedent um beyond just the implication in our modern society of of the fact that confederacy is equivalent to slavery, so there's racism involved in like in um holding up the Confederate cause on any level, it becomes an implication of racism, obviously. But there is a historical precedent for just romanticizing the loser of of a famous conflict. Um so I think there's a lot going on. I mean, remember Benioff and Weiss were supposed to be they had a show that was like gonna go up uh, called Confederacy about like what if the Confederacy won? Imagine the timing on that thing, especially how people felt about them coming out off of game of Thrones. If that had gone through my God, what a nightmare for everyone involved. But I look, I love TCM. I'm with you. I I love it to death. I watch it all the time. I love old movies. I am also acutely aware of how even the most innocuous seeming old movie, just within the context of its own period is offensive in many ways by today's standards. The role women played in society alone, like the way women are portrayed on film historically, it's, it's the, with every year that passes, and this is a good thing, that's why it's called progress. With every year that passes, they look worse. Like even a great movie like The Apartment, um, Billy Wilder's like just excellent movie, 1960 or 61 maybe. Uh, Best Picture winner, I think too, like great movie. But it really doesn't age super well, just because the times change, right? So there's all kinds of things. I think that this is, this is forward thinking to say, hey, we don't want to lose sight of what makes a classic a great piece of art. We want to maintain a relationship to it and to its historical context. And I think what they're doing, the way they're approaching it is brilliant and exactly how I would want us all to approach it. Jacqueline Stewart, I believe, is the host of DCM, who's doing a lot of these. She's a black woman, and she's talking about Gone with the Wind, When she says, we know millions of people love these films. We're not saying this is how you should feel about Gone with the Wind or Psycho. We're just trying to model ways of having longer and deeper conversations and not just cutting it off to, I love this movie, I hate this movie, because there's so much space in between. and you know, that's the reality. Like there are great things about them. They can be nostalgic. They can be great. They can be, I mean, my dad always hated Gone with the Wind and thought it was boring. Like, but, but my mom loved it, but, and neither of them is like, and not even getting into the stuff about what's inappropriate about it or what's politically uncomfortable, awkward, racist, all that stuff about it. I, I just think that we're going to continue to have this issue. Just the other day, Pepe LePew, there was this story about how Pepe LePew was cut out of the new Space Jam because his scene was eh, questionable. And to me, it was funny just on a few levels, but also because, hey, Pepe Le Pew, everything about him is not appropriate anymore. <laughs> like It's just one inappropriate joke from a time where that would have been kind of considered okay to joke about it, and now is 100% not. And I, the scene in question, I think... They're talking to him. He has a restraining order on him against the cat who he's always chasing. But it's like, they were like, eh, let's just cut this. Um, you know, that's that's the way things go. Understanding the context, though, is is everything. That's education and knowledge and power. That's what I believe we're here to do. And I think that's so cool that TCM is doing that. There's something I wanted to ask you about, because I feel like there's an offshoot of this, which is there's the depiction. But then when we talk about, like, Mickey Rooney... There's this other issue, which is like the whitewashing, like when a white person plays a non white person, which there's a long, like horrifying legacy of this in Hollywood. You can look up Marlon Brando, Catherine Hepburn, John Wayne, and even, of course, recent examples like when they had uh, I mean, there's just many recent examples. It's extremely uncomfortable, and it's a whole, it's like a su- separate issue, but a, but a same issue. Do you think you need to address those things differently? It's essentially blackface for a variety of races. Should those movies just be struck in from, stricken from the record? What do you think?
0: At, at some point, we have to make the decision of, like, you know, whenever anyone is like, where do you draw the line? My instinct is always like, somewhere. Like, you have a conversation about drawing the line somewhere. And we can move where that line is. And so, you know, whenever you want to change the line, someone's always like, well, where will it stop? Will we let people marry dogs? And it's like, well, no, but gay people can marry. Like we can move the line to another place and still rule out. So like we're in a line moving moment and figuring out where the line moves is a bigger cultural conversation that we'll have as a group. And I don't know that I'm the right arbiter of whether or not we should just be like, you know, we can just stop showing this movie. I, okay, like, I feel well, comfortable but here's, saying- here's why
1: I ask you though, because I, and I'm and i I'm going to ask you, I'm asking your take, not like, do you think it should be the rule? But I, something we talked about once in terms of, I guess, what we're calling cancel culture uh, that we talked about on this podcast has stayed with me, especially in light of the Alan Farrow doc that people are watching and talking about. You were saying like, you know what? I don't need to teach Manhattan in classes anymore because I just don't. There's a lot of great movies out there and I just don't need to spend any more time, uh, you know, basking in the glory or the genius of this guy, given what's so clear about him and so not okay. And I agreed as you said it, I was like, hell, I agree. Like, I don't need to watch, I don't need it. Like, there's a lot of great movies. Like, but but where do you personally draw that line, I guess? Because like, The movie where John Wayne plays Genghis Khan is not a great movie. If it was, would you feel like "Ah, maybe I should still like
0: it or watch it? I mean, it's, it's complicated. I mean, I'm a believer in trigger warnings. Like I give trigger warnings before I show things that I consider triggering in my class. I don't understand why people get so worked up about trigger warnings. Like it's no different than the rating system right? The rating system has a little list of like, what's going to be, you know, what's going to be in this movie is like violent language and stuff to help you make a decision about consuming the movie. And I think it's a really good point. Pro there's nobody who's system. ever
1: like violence. Why would you warn me? Oh my God, we're too sensitive. I know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you, you guys are so sensitive that you're warning me there's blood and violence. It, it's the same <laughs> thing. It's just trying to give you some indication of like what the content is. So you can make decisions as an informed consumer before you do it. So like, for instance, with The Apartment, I still show The Apartment. Uh, I've been teaching The Apartment for 15 years. I love The Apartment. It's a magnificent movie. There's so much good about it. There is so much wonder about it. It's so beautifully shot. It's so beautifully written. And I always talk about, you know, there's weird gender stuff in it before I show it. Um, You know, there's, for instance... There is a scene in which one of the characters is flirting with another character and she's like, well, you know a lot about me. And he's like, oh, I've read everything in your HR file, which in 1960 (laughs) is apparently not terrifying, but is terrifying in 2021 and really shows how different our, our culture is that like, you know, if you had that, if you had two people flirting and one character said that in 2021, it would be a scare moment. Like the person being flirted with would fairly be like, Oh, you're terrifying and creepy. You've invaded my privacy. You're a danger to me. And that's oh, yeah, not what the, the scene is meant to play.
1: Yeah. I mean, the whole context of the movie would be today, like, you know, people, all these guys getting fired, you would hope. Like, it's just like everything about it is like, oof, this is bad. Like, there's none about, nothing about this setup makes sense in our current world. And that's a good
0: thing. But yeah. you're right. It's a different Well, except for world. the governor's office in Albany. But other than there, it's over. Um, <laughs> Cuomo. Uh, but the point remains... So for me, I talk about that before I show it. If I'm going to show some stuff from the apartment, especially if I'm going to show the whole film and give like a visual design lecture over, I talk about that some... I also didn't really... I mean, there's all sorts of stuff in the apartment that I just missed because I'm not the right person to catch it. I wasn't alive yeah. then, so I didn't know. So there was a joke about the apartment in... Mad Men, where one of the characters watches it and the other character, Roger Sterling, says something that's deliberately intended to paint Roger Sterling as racist, where Roger Sterling is like a building in Midtown with white elevator operators. I want to work there. And like it's clearly meant to be racist, but it's also something that highlighted for me something I never noticed because I was blinkered to it which is, I wasn't alive, I didn't know, was that it was more typical for elevator operator to be an African-American job in the 60s in Midtown. So the apartment whitewashes that a little bit by having white elevator operators. Like, there are not Mm -hmm. really black characters in the apartment, and that is something I usually mention when talking about the apartment. Do I still think the love story works? Do I still think the neighbor is hilariously well-written? Do I still think that there are things that are worth studying in it? Absolutely. Do I think it's fair to expect people who teach it and show it to... To talk about the context in which it's created, I do think that is fair. Um, yeah, but I, I also well, wonder. Well I mean, said. I, yeah, I you know, as much as I have affection for movies like The Apartment, you know, I also think that we are we're only a hundred years into movies, and when you think about like the three thousand year history of of painting, not counting like cave paintings, that let's go like painting as a as a profession, which I think presumably started in ancient Rome. Um, where you're like, oh, there's people that like did nothing else. I think cave paintings were mostly a hobby. Like 3,000 years of history.
1: <laughs> they were a matter we of
0: recording. Really... <laughs> yeah. They were journalism. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It was like, hey, we just killed three gazelles. Let's record it. Um, <laughs> so it's like it's a different, you know, and, and it's grown and it's changed for 3,000 years. And, and no offense to the Roman painters, but I can't name one of them. And like we're in the first 100 years of cinema. And in a 1,000 years, like like i i would hope that a couple of my favorite movies someone still cares about but but if it's possible that we as a society just keep growing and changing and evolving and and see things in a new fresh light like that that might just be part of society progressing. I mean, like for instance, that, you know, there's so many books, you know, like Ivanhoe was the biggest hit book before the civil war. I know no one who's read Ivanhoe. I haven't read Ivanhoe. No one is running around mad that Ivanhoe got canceled. We just moved on from us as, as a society to where we stopped giving a shit about Ivanhoe. We didn't have to cancel it. We were just like, this book is no longer relevant. It is a popular pre-civil war book in which, uh, apparently according to an article I read once a whole bunch of like, it's medieval kind of Robin are, right? Yeah. It's Robin Hoody, but apparently it's like a real pro-slavery Robin Hood. Ooh. Um, like that's like that's, <laughs> well, like, that's the now. take I've heard on Ivanhoe. Yeah. So like I mean, as a society, a- we're moving on from content all the time. We're saying like, I am no longer interested in this.
1: It's so true and faster than ever. Like, like at a at a crazy rate. And uh, the thing that I it's such a good point. The the bigger context because what I was going to mention was in. Um, I remember in a class I had on Greek literature and so we're talking the old stuff like the Iliad and I remember we were reading it and people were upset with the the idea that the, the Achilles character was supposed to be a protagonist or a likable figure when we're introduced to him he's like angry because after a battle he wasn't rewarded with the women that they won in the battle. It's something like that. (laughs) And the teacher was like, look, let's not judge Achilles by today's standards. He's like 4,000 years old. (laughs) It was like, yeah, I mean, we have to try and understand the context of the story a little bit and the era and the culture. There were different cultures at the time. That behavior would not fly today, but wow, that story lasted. Like, that's kind of crazy. Just that 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 piece of something, the odds that any of our movies, that any one of our movies from the last hundred years is, a, is around in 3000 years are very slim or has any impact or is studied at all. It's possible that there's quite a few. It's also possible that there's none who knows um, who knows what'll even be here. Who who knows how the mediums will change. There could be, you know, it, it's such a great point. And I think that's sort of why it goes to, to me to thinking like, let's try Like if we were in a history class, that's how you, you can only enjoy, if you're going to enjoy the Iliad, you're only going to be able to enjoy it if somebody can open, unlock the door for you by giving you a a time and place and a context to get at what it meant then a little bit. And it's so alien to understand the context of that world that it takes a little work. Like you have to jiggle the key a lot. And I think that we don't have to jiggle the key that much on the apartment, but we do. And that's only going to get harder But that doesn't mean it's not worth the effort, and it also doesn't mean we shouldn't have that lock on the door, if that makes sense. Like I think that there's there's value in all of this. There's value in moving on, and there's value in looking back and trying to understand what it meant when it existed, how different the society was. That's a good thing, honestly. Um, But I think you make a great point. I remember you bring up Mad Men and how they... Basically, Mad Men took a moment there to say like, wow, that movie that's dated was not as nearly not nearly as dated as you think. Like the guy like and what's funny about that is that I remember people seeing Mad Men when it came out and were quite uncomfortable with how openly racist, sexist, anti-Semitic just in the pilot. If you haven't seen that pilot in a while, they just hold nothing back. Like all the main characters are super duper racist, sexist, anti-Semitic. It softens a little bit over time partly because the show is progressing in time, but but that first one, they just throw it all right at you. And I think people were like, ew, I don't I don't want to like these guys. This is gross. But it was like, but that's the, the period they're trying to create is where that was normal. And that's either interesting to you to watch knowing that or not, but you don't want to mimic it.
0: What's well, also, everything about studying movies should be about understanding more context. Like we, you know, I remember when, Like I watched Wizard of Oz as a kid, like kids of my generation did, although I don't think kids of this generation do. And then, you know, I got to high school and my high school history teacher explained that it was actually about 1890s monetary policy and the yellow brick road was the gold standard. And there were all these like specific cultural meanings that like, you know, had no impact on me as a child, but it's like interesting and fascinating and explains how things came to be. And it's part of the things we study, but it's also important to remember that like, things get divorced from that meaning as they travel through time and take on new meanings. I mean, we yeah. always forget like Sophocles, the Greek tragedian, I think it's Sophocles, whatever Twitter, tell me if I'm wrong, was not famous in like was originally famous as a pro wrestler and then switched to writing drama like later in his life. So like started in pro wrestling, switched to drama. Yeah, I, so, I
1: did not know that today. It I is entirely Sophocles possible in a pro wrestler
0: in, <laughs> in 3000 years the movies of The Rock are going to be the movies we remember best. Like, that is entirely possible. <laughs> and, like, I'm okay with that, I think. Um, especially if it's, like, The Rundown and Fast <laughs> Fast and the Furious 4, 5, and 6. Like, if that's what survives from our civilization, I'm well, okay with Well, I think you it.
1: could say, yeah, he's a... Re- but Arnold would be another example of that, maybe, where, you know, you'd say, like, T2 I guess two the is point, the
0: only movie. The point I'm trying to make... <laughs> is that culture is not a static thing that's sitting in place. We are always actively choosing to promote something and we're always actively putting something in context all the time. And the process we're going right through right now is one in which we're trying to re-examine what we're choosing to promote and how we choose to promote it. Because like there's no non-promotion. Something is always getting promoted. We're always screening certain things in movie theaters, in re-releases, we're always making posters of things, we're always giving things retrospectives in museums, we're always screening something on TV, we're always making a choice to promote something, and people are taking this opportunity to evaluate these habits about what we promote, and I think that's beautiful.
1: Yeah. I I also want to make another point. I think this this is the conversation of our time in many ways, when it comes to movies and television and content and the the idea of cancel culture and what's appropriate and reappropriating. But I want to make a point that that comes up for me, and I'm thinking back to your comments on Manhattan and Woody Allen, which is context is super important. We've discussed that, but so is intention. Sometimes you can look at a piece of work and understand the context of it, the impact of it, But you might also know things about the intent of the artist, and that could change how you feel about it. And there are examples of this, sort of like Triumph of the Will, maybe Birth of a Nation, maybe like there's propaganda that is intended to put forth a certain political perspective. And then there's things that are just, I don't want to say just to make it any lighter, because it can be just as damaging, equally damaging. But then the apartment, which is portraying the era as it was in the moment without understanding you know, the, how those things harmed women necessarily. It was just, this is the way things are. So this is the story we're telling. They weren't saying, uh, they weren't promoting a worldview with the same intentionality that maybe D.W. Griffith was with Birth of a Nation, where he was elevating the Klan. That changes the way we look at it, and it might change the choice to teach it because, you know, if I had the choice of screening Civil War, I would not screen Birth of a Nation. Like, I would just say, like, I think I can find other examples of of editing and and other things Griffith did or people from that specific time period to try and convey the point. I don't need to elevate that, you know. That would be my choice. But we all get to make those choices, right? And that I think that creating additional context allows us to be like, do I want to show the Woody Allen movie... Where he's dating a teenager. I don't think so. Like, I think I can find other great black and white photography like Raging Bull or, whatever, or other love stories, or I don't know.
0: You know, I mean, Raging Bull, he also gets together with her when she is very young.
1: You're right. Wow, that's weird because they're like back to, they're like right around the same time and they're both, black I mean,
0: and it white. was the 70s. I think a lot of, I think it's a 70s yeah. thing. And I think we're just going to, we're going to, we're just going to say we can, I mean, I'm still going to show Raging Bull because it's beautiful and the relationship is not the defining factor. And I think she's of consenting age. I don't actually remember. Also, Jake LaMotta is not being presented as the hero in Raging Bull. He is obviously deeply, deeply flawed. Yes.
1: And the things he does are, right. That's exactly it. There's context of like, uh, the movie does not promote a view with intentionality of this is an okay thing and it's acceptable. It promotes it sort of like, this is a, maybe kind of a, this is a bad thing. This is a problem. This is a tortured person. This is a criminal act. Yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, Manhattan, Manhattan is worse than depicting a world in which it's okay. Manhattan is actively embarking on on the project of attempting to make it seem more okay. Like Manhattan is a deliberate attempt to be like, you know what? 40 year olds dating 15 year olds is just a thing. It just happens. And the heart wants what the heart wants. And like, like it is, it is, it is a propaganda mission for.
1: (laughs) Well, that's, yeah, which is why I classify it a little bit with like birth of a nation where it's like, I could definitely live without teaching this, like there's stuff going on. And that's also the power of the medium or any medium or art. If we make a decision to intentionally promote something, we craft the universe as, a, as an artist. We make the argument. So we have to, if we're teaching it, watching it, screening it, thinking about it, reliving it, we have to be careful what we share. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day!
0: It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So, speaking about what we're sharing and what we're consuming, our next story Tom and Jerry did $14 million (laughs) at the domestic box office last weekend. So if you're wondering about perpetuating the cultural archetypes of Tom and Jerry, although I heard a great theory about Tom and Jerry that they're actually best friends and the mouse is deliberately looking like they're fighting Jerry so that I guess the cat doesn't get disowned by its owner or something. It's like a deliberate deliberate play act. It's a performance, (laughs) which I like that theory. But fourteen million dollars is a is a terrible, terrible box office weekend in twenty nineteen. But in the COVID era, is actually the best box office weekend we've had in a long time, and it's because theaters are starting to reopen. California is loosening restrictions. Twenty five percent capacity was allowed at first, but now some areas are allowing more. New York, uh, Cuomo, that 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 terrible person just uh, expanded. <laughs> I talk so much trash about Cuomo, but I feel like everybody does, so it's not going to come back to well, bite me. Like, yeah,
1: these days, I mean. But
0: I also feel like Cuomo probably keeps an enemies list and is petty enough that I would be on it. So, you know. I don't know.
1: I, is he listening? Are either of the Cuomos listening?
0: <laughs> I mean, <I'm>, of course. <laughs> With I'm George Lucas? Uh, yeah. Oh, George. Hit me up on Twitter. Um, so, you know, movie theaters are attending an IMAX. Uh, thinks that we're going to have a summer blockbuster season that is going to be huge. I think, I mean, look, if Biden really uh, gets everyone vaccinated by May, is there a scenario in which there will be a huge summer blockbuster season? I actually, I mean, look, I don't want to, I want everyone to be safe. And I don't want anyone to die in order to see the new Bond movie. Like Bond movie might be good. It is not worth dying and it's not worth getting sick and then infecting your grandma and dying. But if it can, be I would actually safely... bet.
1: I, I would bet that it won't be good, just because you know odds are never in favor of that, in my opinion. But I'm jaded.
0: Oh, really? But um, <laughs> Corey Joji Fukunaga is pretty good. Oh he, yeah, I, I just
1: I feel this is a whole side i just feel like a lot of times with a movie that big and a property like that it's it's kind of a happy accident it's never anyone's fault but it's so hard to thread that needle you know like i'm i'm rooting for them of course i just think it's so hard to pull it
0: all off. i mean i but like i don't think that ratio of goodness is like what one in 10 movies that good that that good is is tolerable, right? Nine out of ten of them are terrible, and one in ten is good. But
1: like, yeah, one in ten about, is a great ratio, considering. But yeah,
0: like, like think about all of the indie movies that don't make it to audiences because they're awful. Like, you know, yeah. I think I don't know. I'm yes. I'm hopeful. I think the combination of him and um, Fleabag was one of the writers and. Uh, I'm sure she loves when people call her Fleabag because their name escapes them because they didn't prep to talk about Bond. Um, But, you know, she is uh, wonderful and a very talented writer and incredibly intelligent. And so I think the combo of those two creators could maybe give us an interesting bond. Oh,
1: for sure. Depending on how much they were required, how many things they were handcuffed to or. Yeah, yeah how many set pieces back. they had to yeah, work like towards. How many it, lines of dialogue they have to Phoebe
0: Waller bridge. bridge. I don't have to yeah, call her flea bag anymore. Phoebe Waller Bridge, who is wonderful. So yeah, I mean, I think that look, some people think that restrictions have already been lifted for some reason. And in Texas, I guess they have been. When this is finally like over, it'll be a long, slow, gradual process. It's not like one day every on July third, everybody gives you like July fourth, go crazy. Like it'll be a long, slow process. But I do think we are gonna see a crazy summer of socializing and partying and single people dating. And I think that with that will come a big movie summer. So I, I actually don't think that IMAX is just being overly optimistic. I think if everyone is vaccinated by May, there's a scenario, cause there's so much pent up demand and there's so yeah. many movies that we're waiting to see and $14 million got spent to see Tom and Jerry in the theater that I think that there's some real possibility for a nice big summer from IMAX.
1: Yeah. Look, when this post came out, when we published this story on March 2nd, when this news was circulating, I was, I was like, yeah, this is some rose tinted glasses coming from people who are hoping box office numbers tick up. It's been a week as of this recording and my opinions have changed because the numbers of, of how many people are vaccinated have gone up so much, because with that has come just looser, not even just restrictions, but just people loosening up so much. The numbers of, of te- positive test cases and hospitalizations has been dropping, and I'm in one of the most, I mean, in Los Angeles, we've had some of the worst bouts of that in the last six months. So what I've seen, to my anecdotal you know, evidence, it just feels like we're rapidly going to some new version of normal where people wear a lot of masking outside and like there's a lot of stuff but i i am just i think we're gonna see a pretty big explosion of whatever the new normal is and i'm not confident in predicting that but i do think you're gonna see people are like yeah let's go you know all that stuff it may not be like a record setter because i think a lot of people are gonna be like i want to be outside i want to be you know at a party like but i just anticipate Disneyland made an announcement about maybe April 1st, and sporting events made an announcement, at least local to Los Angeles, around April 1st. So,
0: doesn't April God, 1st my, feel too soon?
1: Well, also because it's April Fool's Day which makes me uncomfortable, <laughs> but, I, but yes, it does. It's like this dam that's been trying to break and, and breaking a lot anyway, even though there's been attempts to try and restrict it. So like once it becomes even a little bit like, hey, maybe things are normal, people are like, boom, you know, back to normal and then some. So my, I'm not saying it's a good thing necessarily. I'm just saying I am looking around and thinking that it's going to happen, good thing or bad thing. Uh, and unfortunately, like so often, it'll be the most vulnerable among us who suffer the most. It won't be people with means necessarily. It won't be, you know, it'll, it'll and look, kid and kids can't get vaccinated yet. That's going to be a long time. We don't know. There's variants out there that could get kids that could be worse for them. There's all kinds of stuff. You know, this thing is not, this is a long way from over, but it's going to change big time. That's my sense reading the tea leaves. And I think, Hey, f- coming back to film, because that's what we talk about here. Filmmakers who are missing movie theaters and audiences, I think you will be back in them. That's my prediction. And I think come fall, I think the festival circuit will feel pretty normal again, too. That's my prediction.
0: All right. And then last up, Jean-Luc Godard has announced retirement, which is interesting because Jean-Luc Godard is 90. <laughs> And said he's going to work on two more films and then retire, which is bold. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean look I have a lot of affection for early guitar films I actually many of you probably know this I wrote a whole feature script that actually about young guitar having a romance in Bakersfield California because I'm obsessed with Bakersfield and I like early guitar films and no film school had a contest before I wrote for no film school they the, there's an article on no film school about a contest called thunder, thunder which was going to finance films and I, I shot a sizzle trailer and which is still on my website, and I and I we got selected by Thunderfunder, and we were going to get financed, and it was great, and we attached people, and then Thunderfunder turned out to be a bunch of criminals, and we got sued, and all of this drama, and you know, I ended up writing for no film school, so that was a good bit, um, but you know, totally uh, a <laughs> totally a mess. Um, but the you know into Gadar, I'm going to go out on a limb. I know Gadar is a listener, and I'm sorry to say this, Jean Luc, <laughs> as a big listener but his recent movies and by recent movies i would say everything he has made in my lifetime so for 41 <laughs> the last years, 40 now,
1: years.
0: <laughs> have not been as strong as his earlier movies and so like you know i keep watching them because of how much affection i have for his early work
1: well good for you
0: I mean, I don't finish every one of them, (laughs) Okay, (laughs) you know, I'll even go see them in the theater sometimes. Although I walked out of the, the last one that I went to, um, but I wanted it, you know, but it was opening weekend and I was like, I'll give them a, you know, like, uh, I went and this movie was actually great. Uh, but I really wanted to go and see, um, a prayer home companion. Cause I, we all knew it was Robert Altman's last movie. And I was like, or we thought it was going to be one of his last movies. And I was like, I'm going Friday night. Robert Altman, like, I'm going to contribute to a big opening weekend for Robert Altman movies still getting released theatrically. And Premium Companion's a good movie. Turns out Garrison Keeler has been canceled for me tooing And like, probably fair. He always seemed like he had that vibe. So, like, not surprised to discover Garrison Keillor's a bit of a squeezer or a grabber, I guess it was more than anything else. Um, so yeah, but I mean, you know, and so I'll go see a guitar movie for like the support and the person whose movies had a big impact on me and when I was young, but it, he's drifted. So, you know, I'll probably see both of these movies.
1: I'm glad that when I went to high school and my film class in high school, the teacher was this massive Godard fan and he expo- he to him godard was the goat greatest of all time and he exposed us all to godard and listen i it's not my cup of tea french new wave the style it never was but i am 100% aware of how important his filmmaking and his writing and his thinking was to the evolution of the form and i think any student of film Should be. This has really become a uh, student of film history episode of the No Film School podcast, which is awesome because that's my favorite stuff. But I love um, I love his role. I love his influence is so massive. If you guys and girls out there aren't aware from Scorsese to Tarantino to De Palma to Soderbergh to Altman to Fassbender to Wong Kar Wai to I mean, he is just everywhere. His his fingerprints are all over movie making. He is one of the major figures that pushed us into the era we are in. Who created the ideas of auteurs, the Cahiers du Cinema, like and Breathless, and those first movies. Um, Pierre Lefou. I'm a personally a huge fan of Contempt. That's my favorite one. I think it's like the most beautiful, I mean, one of the most beautiful things. Yeah, it's just just oozes good like in every frame it's so nice to look at um but i like yeah he he's he's amazing he's unique and and it's just just a chance to gush about him a little bit i think though that i agree with you like is he really retiring he's 90 like are there really two more movies in the tank like i I don't want to sound morbid but like that sort of reminds me of like my dog is a little older and when he gets a procedure they're like it's likely that old age will take him before this particular thing that is hailing him. Like I just did two more movies is a lot and 90 is old and a good long life, of course. So I just don't know that like, will he make it to his retirement? I think is a valid question. His proposed retirement. I like that. These guys kind of play this game. Some of them, like how many times Tarantino keeps kind of talking about this supposed retirement, like when it's going to come. Like after the next one? No, I don't mean the Star Trek one. I mean the one after that. Like, what? It's a game. It got Godar on our podcast as a topic, and it got him in the headlines. And good for that, because people should know about him and think about him and watch his movies. And and apparently not the ones from the last forty years. Like to me, to me, he hasn't been making movies for the last forty years. So, but I'm but at the same time, I'm glad he has been. That's so cool, isn't it? Whether yeah, they're good I mean or not. the other
0: thing. The other thing I will say is I actually haven't watched many of the Kurosawa movies from the seventies. I know I should go back and do that, but now I have kids, so I don't get to watch movies, and I didn't get to do it before I had kids. But ter- apparently, the Kurosawa movies from the seventies are not great. Haven't seen them. Love early Kurosawa. Love mid-period Kurosawa. Just haven't seen those. But then later in his career, after a period in which most people agree the movies were not strong, he made Ron and Dreams in his eighties. You know, dreams is uneven, but has some real beauty and some real, like amazing visuals, and like Ron, legitimate masterpiece.
1: Yeah, and, yeah. It's a you great know, point. like
0: it is entirely possible, and I don't want to be an ageist. I don't want to rule out the possibility that like Godard could drop something that is legitimately on par with or an evolution of the work he was playing with as a younger person. Like honestly, if I'm alive at 90, I'm probably going to have two more projects that I'm trying to get done. I interviewed uh, one of my favorite filmmakers a couple years ago, Elliot Silverstein. And uh, you know, his big heyday was the fifties and sixties. He was directing episodes of the twilight zone in 1955. And he has a movie he is trying to get made right now. And more power to him i want to see another elliot silverstein movie i want to see another strong good movie and like i don't want to rule out the possibility that that careers are weird and unpredictable and somehow kurosawa had ron in him and there could be godard's ron which like i would totally watch godard's version of king lear in feudal japan like i would be fascinated at what godard would see about that and like you know Goddard has stayed current, like a, a movie of his a couple of years ago had like YouTube elements. And like, he's apparently a big fan of YouTube and has like favorite clips <laughs> and like, there's a, like he has stayed contemporary in an interesting way. And so like, I would be curious about a Goddard movie about coronavirus and the rise of the alt-right. Like, I think he has insights. I, I think it's just interesting to be like, why even bother to say you're retiring? Why don't you just say, I'm going to keep going? Like, yeah. People live to 120 in France. Like, I want to see a guitar movie in 20 years.
1: I do think that part of it is getting into a news cycle, even though that sounds kind of jaded. Yeah. But but I Oh no, I, you Guitar make is totally movie.
0: that savvy. Guitar is totally <laughs> that savvy.
1: I you make a good point about Kurosawa, those last movies. And it's really cool because he was falling out of favor and a bunch of the guys who he inspired most who had hit the big time, like the Lucas Spielberg Coppola gang kind of were like, Hey, Hey, let's get like, he want, he's got movies to make, let's help him," And, and that kind of kickstarted him back. And then he made a couple of like late masterpieces. And uh, yeah, I, I, it's art. TikTok has so much breathless going on. Like TikTok has a serious Godard vibe just as a platform. <laughs> like I, so I feel like he's yeah, he's he's always been forward thinking and progressive and um, his his craft. So I I'm on board. I mean, if I hear someone, t- if so, it, it would take people telling me like you for example, like saying like I saw a new Godard movie that really is worth seeing. But like, until I hear that, I'm, it's going to be hard for me to make the time, probably. But, hey, he's always welcome on the No Film School podcast anytime he wants.
0: Did you hear that, Jean-Luc? Join us. <laughs> Give your blessing to my film about the young Godard. Although, and we'll wrap with this. Um, weirdly, the guy who directed the movie The Artist, which won Best Picture, a couple years later directed a film about a young Godard having a love affair, which flopped, which, like, firmly killed my project. Because like uh, when you've won Best Picture and you follow up with a movie with the same concept as mine, you bastard <laughs> who I've never met, um, and then it flops, it like kills my project. Also, everyone would assume, even though my project was written way earlier, that it was a ripoff. So you know that one's dead. Yeah. But John Luke, if you wanted to bring it back to life, we could talk. All right, moving on. We've got two little tech news stories. They're 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 interesting, uh, but I wanted to talk about them. One of them, Aeroflex. You guys all know Aeroflex. They make the Airy Alexa. They unveiled a whole remote workflow solution that I wanted to talk about because it is basically like I've heard so many pitches in the last year about like remote workflow solution. And it's always like it's a crew in a box. There's actually one called crew in a box. That's actually pretty good. It's one of the better ones, but it's like you ship a package to someone, they open it up, they can shoot themselves, they close it up. So we hear that a lot. And so when I initially heard Aerie has a remote solution set up, I was worried it was going to be a small thing like that. But that's ridiculous. Aerie doesn't do small things. They do big things. And so Aerie's whole remote solution is an entire way to automate everything about a set so you can do it all remotely. They don't really mean remotely like you're in London and the crews in France, although you could do that. They really mean like you can be on a giant stage and you have a remote-controlled dolly with a remote-controlled camera head and a remote-controlled um, you know, boom arm and all of that so that you can be 200 feet away on the other side of the studio while dollying in, dollying out. So you no longer have to have a camera operator and a first AC up there. When you next say you, I
1: just quick cut off and question. When you say you, how many people does it take to operate the remote solutions? I know we have in our post about it, the remote seminar. You can watch it online and I'm sure it has a lot of these answers. But just for the sake of the podcast, for those of you who it's, are, yeah, who can go later, later check that out. But I'm really curious how many people can operate, have to operate.
0: So it's pretty much the same setup as it always would have been. You still want a first AC worried about focus. It's still Got very it. hard to do focus and operating camera. So you're still gonna have a first AC doing focus. You'll have a camera operator doing pans and tilts, and then you'll have sort of a dolly grip managing dolly movements in space. And so it's energy- like a
1: is it like a a land party? Like people who are online gaming? Like the, the crew is like online gaming in one room and the set is happening in another? Like everybody's yeah. sitting at their own device?
0: That yeah, so more or less. Cool. I mean, it, you could say land party. You could also say it's a little bit like an Air Force drone pilot building where all these people are sitting there flying their drones and the drones are on the other side of the world and they're sitting in like, trailers in the desert outside okay Vegas. yours is
1: co- is decidedly cooler than mine but mine is sillier so we'll have yours to let is sillier
0: and fewer be. people die i mean i don't actually know how many people have died <laughs> at land parties so i'm, I'm i think Maybe more actually yeah yeah i mean land parties got kind of crazy there for a minute that guy in the duct tape <laughs> So yeah, I mean, so it's, you know, it it just lets everybody spread out and all the lights can be automated with light movers and light controls. And so the whole thing can happen where the actors no longer have anybody physically near them. Now, this is amazing for COVID. It's a bit of a bummer um, because I really like being near the actors. I don't feel like I see the performance as well through the monitor. But obviously during COVID, I can't, I usually sit right under the camera, but you can't really do that. So you have to do this all remotely. And this is the first time I've seen a demo where I'm like, oh, this is great. And a bunch of this is gonna stick around. Like in five years, you're still gonna be on a bunch of productions where like, if the dolly grip can be two rooms away, like the operator might be on the dolly or even there might be no one on the dolly. So that the dolly can do these amazing, incredible moves, but the director might still be in the room so they can watch the performance live or something like. Who knows exactly how it's going to work, but I thought it was really sort of, I mean, unsurprising for Aerie, an impressive uh, remote solution demo that I think should be on people's radar. And then the other bit of tech news to cover this week is Mavo has announced they're no longer going to have internal ProRes recording. So context of this, Mavo is a Chinese company that makes cinema cameras. They're not exactly red knockoffs, like that wouldn't be fair But if there's a camera it's most similar to in terms of sort of ergonomic design, actually it's the Mavo is the model. Kinefinity is the camera. So uh, Kinefinity makes the camera and Mavo is the model. Kinefinity makes red-like cameras. They're not perfect analogs, but they're similar to red cameras in like the way they're designed and the features they offer and such and um you know they've been really popular people have been taking to them and and you know they have a 6k camera they have a large format camera now they have an 8k camera and they've always shot internal to prores which is great but the one thing they can't do is shoot internal raw except for this format cinema dng which is technically raw but the files are so big it's almost not worth dealing with and the reason why is red has a patent on internal raw video recording. This is a patent that Sony's tried to fight. This is a patent that Apple's tried to fight. Two of the biggest names swung at this patent and missed. So this patent is arguably pretty strong. Also, Ginny Tech, who I love for being Ginny Tech, also took a swing at this patent, which is like good for them. They made a bunch of YouTube videos trying to bring this patent down with like all sorts of like, you know conspiracy theory photos from NAB 2006. So people have been swinging at this patent and uh, red is red is not messing around. And now red, and you know there are journalists who have done much deeper dives into this. Patent law enforcement in with Chinese businesses is not always easy uh they have a different <laughs> patent law structure uh planet money has an amazing story about i think it's a duct tape company uh that was decided that they were or a glue manufacturer in Indiana that was like getting knocked off by a, a chinese manufacturer and like went to bat to stop it and they had to hire a bunch of people and it became a very serious effort to do it it's possible i mean there are patent laws in china and we do have trade agreements with them so it should be possible it's just different and complicated it seems like Red has managed to enforce this patent restriction on Kinfinity. Kinfinity is removing, they're no longer going to support ProRes RAW, which they had announced they were going to support, but I hadn't gotten around to. And they're removing CinemaDNG from their Mavo line. So if you currently have a Mavo, your firmware will let you record CinemaDNG, but the next firmware upgrade, that's going to disappear. Now, that's not a big that's deal because su- CinemaDNG. Su- DNG. Oh, okay. Cinema DNG, the files are just (laughs) the files are just so big that nobody cares. Like it's just the only people who are maybe shooting cinema DNG are like tabletop people where your shots are like two seconds long. But you're not gonna like I don't know anybody who's gone out and shot a feature film cinema DNG like like you just wouldn't you'd spend so much money on hard drives that you might as well just go buy a Red because then you could just shoot internal Hmm, RAW like the savings. Because the whole thing with Mavo is like it's a more affordable option that gives you red right. like image quality, and it actually quite does. And it's like, okay, well, then at that point, do I want to spend all the money I saved on the camera body on hard drives? Like, probably not. So, cinema DNG is not a solution for most users. Someone out there is going to argue with me on Twitter about their one workflow where they use it a lot, but for the most part, it's just not a it's not a functional cinema workflow. So, yeah red you're enforcing this patent in china there's a story there the next time we talk to anybody from red i'm gonna ask about this process because it is fascinating yeah. to hear like how they, how they pulled it. it off yeah yeah
1: very interesting
0: all right well that is it this week on the no film school podcast i'm charles hayne i am a filmmaker and a film professor and i write books and i ride bikes and you can check me out at charleshane.com <laughs> And Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain, H H A I N E, and uh, you know, make you know, start an argument with me on Twitter.
1: Yeah, me too. I love that. I'm a Twitter troll. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Please like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and Check out all the other interviews we have on this very same podcast where we talk to filmmakers from far and wide, cinematographers, art department people, sound recorders and mixers. Um, We're gonna have an interview with the production designer and set decorator from Mank coming out soon. That was really fun. We don't get to talk to art department very often. So be sure to check that out. Thanks so much.